Welcome to the Rebel Alliance Media Podcast with your hosts, Chris and Nate. How are you doing today, Nate? I'm doing all right. How about you? Can't complain. The weather keeps changing on me and it's driving me a little bit insane. I know. It's one of those days where the snow will blow and it'll be like white out for a couple of minutes and then all of a sudden the sun comes out and you have to put on your sunglasses and it's it's a very schizophrenic day. Days like this make me think I'm called to missions. So I'm like, <laughs> Somewhere warm? Somewhere or? warm where I could just, you know, preach the gospel every day, be warm, not have to wear like coats. Why do, you, why do you need snow or weather like today? David Platt would just tell you, you are called to missions. So unless you're called to stay, then you should go. That's very convicting, I think, actually, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I would argue that North America needs missions just as much as overseas. So technically, I'm on mission every day here. Well, I'm going to get Platt on the show at some point to come in and contradict your theory. David Platt, if you're listening, <laughs> feel free to shoot us a tweet, shoot us an email, and join the podcast if you're not already in China. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So uh, today we're actually uh, doing something that's kind of cool. Uh, Chris blasted out on social media, Facebook and Twitter, just looking for some questions so we can answer your questions. And uh, a couple of great questions came in. So we're going to spend today's episode just kind of uh, plodding through some of those questions. But before we do that, let's start off with our uh, question of the day. And uh, I'll pose this to you, Chris. Uh, what video game are you currently playing right now? Like what, what video game, if you got half an hour to kill or whatever before small group, um, what, what are you loading up? What are you playing right now? Don't judge me, but I'm actually playing FIFA 16. So I'm a big soccer fan, as we all know. I haven't repented of that yet. Um, I believe it's the only biblical sport. Um, I have no basis for that at all. <laughs> I was just going to ask you to explain that. <laughs> well, it's not mentioned in Leviticus, so I'm okay. Um, but I'm playing FIFA 16 right now but uh you know that's just because i can play it for about 10 minutes get bored shut it off yeah do you uh do you like create a character and like chris poots is working his way through the european circuit i i don't i don't know I, is it called the circuit the minor leagues i don't know what it's called in soccer it's none of those things but um i i can i can confess i don't just create chris poots i create chris poots nate wright like, i'm on your team oh yeah colin wright um Heath Broadhead, like I've got all of you. Um, and I create like a whole, like you're a manager, I'm a manager, you're a player. Like I've done the whole nine yards. Like I go way into it because the creating part for me is way more fun than actually playing the game. I just want to make things up and like simulate. I don't actually want to play because I'll lose to some kid who's four, um, which is what happens. I go online and I just get destroyed. So I don't actually want to do that. So I just make seasons simulate them, get fired from my job. It's fine. Nice. Um, I, so I, the, the, I'm, to be honest with you, I'm just waiting for a game right now. So uh, uh, my brother actually orchestrated for me to get a, a PS4 last year. He kind of got everybody on board in my life to get me uh, gift cards so that I could spend it on nothing but a PS4 and, the, and this game Destiny, which I've been playing with him. It's a first-person shooter, uh, and we play online and stuff. We put our headsets on like nerds and, and shoot stuff. But uh, over the last year, that's gotten kind of boring. So uh, I'm just kind of waiting. So I'm waiting for the new Mass Effect. I'm waiting for Andromeda to, to drop. So uh, I don't know if any of you have played Mass Effect, but I, I don't know, and I don't know about you, Chris, but I would say... Mass Effect is the best video game experience you'll ever have. I, I 100% agree. In fact, I was thinking about this because of Andromeda coming out in like three weeks, I think. Something like that, yeah. Um, 
there isn't a better game, I would argue, out there than the Mass Effect story. It's basically perfect in yeah. terms of video games. Yeah, it's good. It's good. So uh, if any of you out there are video game people and you haven't played Mass Effect yet, uh, there's time to play the... Tr- well, there's not really time to play the trilogy before the new one drops, but uh, I would just recommend go 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 find a way to play Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3. Here, here's what you got to do. You got to take this podcast, throw in some headphones, go get Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3, sit down, listen to our podcasts, as you play Mass Effect, your life is complete for that day. Perfect. Um, okay, so let's just jump into some of these questions because we actually have a number of questions to get through. We'll see how many of them we get through. Uh, you have the question list there, Chris. So why don't you just shoot the first one our way? No problems. Just also want to thank everybody who did respond. Um, these are real questions. These are real questions that you guys have sent in to us. And we're just going to just try to bang them off one at a time. So the very first one we got is... Is drinking alcohol a sin? I know this can be a, a touchy subject sometimes, Nate. How would you respond? Uh, short answer, no. Uh, long answer, heck no, no. <laughs> um, I would, you know, I grew up in, the, in a church where drinking alcohol was a sin. Uh, it was frowned upon. It was kind of that taboo thing that nobody talked about in the church. And, uh, and so it was just assumed that it was sinful. Um, but I also grew up in a church uh, that emphasize reading your Bible. So as I read my own Bible and and I started seeing things like when Jesus turns water into wine or when Paul says to Timothy, take a little bit of wine for your stomach, uh, questions start to come up in my mind. And I, I do that whole, I got questions, y'all. And, uh, and so I started thinking about it. And as you read the biblical narrative and you see the vineyards in the Old Testament, you, you uh, hear um, examples of wine fermenting being a uh, a symbol of the kingdom and the growth of the kingdom, and you look at the New Testament and the New Covenant is symbolized by the cup of wine at the last dinner, see Jesus turning water into wine, all this kind of stuff, you realize there's no way it can be a sin. And so I would just say, no, it's not a sin. And um, a, a very simple way to answer that, and, and I've heard all the arguments, you know, Jesus turned the water into unfermented wine, which is just a ridiculous thing to, to say because um, there's no way a whole wedding full of people like we complain about going to a wedding that isn't an open bar these days <laughs> and so you can imagine first century jesus turns water into wine and you, you think the king you think the people are going to say oh this is the best wine i've ever tasted if it's non-alcoholic wine like no the, the grape juice isn't going to cut it so uh jesus turns water into wine and then i've also heard the argument well jesus it doesn't say jesus drank the wine which is true but if drinking alcohol is a wine it if drinking alcohol is a sin and Jesus turned the water into wine, then he's enabling other people to sin, right? And so uh, so obviously that didn't happen. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was blameless. Uh, a book I'd actually recommend on this is called What Would Jesus Drink? It's by Joel McDermott. It's a short book, um, but it's solid. I'll, I'll just read uh, a, a portion of it here. He says, uh, it's best to understand scriptures saying that we can enjoy alcohol for its enjoyable nature and its effects. We should not abuse it, of course, and that goes without saying, but we absolutely are allowed and should, I would argue, enjoy it for what it is and what it does for us. And then he actually quotes John Calvin, and, uh, and he talks about how John Calvin uh, gives this command or this, uh, this suggestion that we should enjoy alcohol with moderate liberality. And so Joel goes on to essentially summarize what, uh, Calvin's thoughts on alcohol, and he said, 
I think it should be a model, that is uh, Calvin's moderate liberality, I think it should be the model of how we approach alcohol with wise Christian judgment and self-control in the midst of freedom and enjoyment. I think that uh, moderate liberality should be the model of how we do everything in the Christian life. Instead of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, etc., which Paul condemns, we should learn how to handle abundance and freedom in the midst of what we enjoy uh, that Christ gave to us. So um, it, it's a good book, and Joel makes the uh, the point that alcohol is actually given to us as one of the many good things that God gave to us. He gave us sunshine, he gave us waterfalls, he gave us you know all the beautiful things that we enjoy in the world, and he gave us alcohol to enjoy. So I would say, no, absolutely not. Alcohol is not a sin. What are you, Chris? How do you answer that? I would, I would agree. I would say alcohol in itself is not a sin at all. Um, I would, I always think of the verse in Acts when the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles and people start accusing them of being drunk. And Peter right. says, "We're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning." Right. Which implies that later in the day that might not be the case. <laughs> right. I'm not saying the apostles were drunkards. Yeah. Just no, so that's a great verse, right? It's oh, a fantastic. Of course, verse. guys. No, of course we're not drunk. Because it's only nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> because it's nine a.m. Yeah. Um, but I think I think it can be a sin, and I, I my rationality for that is not that alcohol itself is the sin; it's the dependence on it. Right. So I think of um, in Romans when Paul is talking about it's good for your brother to it's not good it's for I can do this, but if your brother does this, it's not good for him to do that. Right. And I think of the idea of if you struggled with alcohol then you drinking alcohol would be a sin because you know that you shouldn't be doing it. Right. Whereas like if I had a beer, I don't struggle with alcoholism, so that wouldn't be a problem. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go far to say it's a sin to drink alcohol by no means, but a nice quote of Romans. Um, <laughs> but I would say that if, if you've struggled with it in the past, then I wouldn't, I would abstain completely as to not risk sinning. But alcohol itself would not be a sin in any way, if that made any sense at all. Yeah, for sure. And I, and we should obviously point out as well, just so we're not giving people license to sin here. Um, the Bible, the New Testament specifically, is very clear that drunkenness is a sin. And, and so you can debate whether that means getting drunk is a sin or whether drunkenness, in other words, alcoholism, um, or continually being drunk is the sin. And, and different scholars uh, would, uh, would interpret that a little bit differently. But the idea is that uh, Paul says very clearly, don't let anything master you, right? And so if alcohol becomes your master, if you need it to cope with things, if you need it to uh, unwind at the end of a hard day, anytime you're starting to rely on alcohol for something you should be relying on Christ for, you know, peace or comfort or whatever the case may be, then it becomes a sin. But it itself is not a sin. Just like anything that we misuse that God's given to us, it can become sinful, but inherently it's not sinful itself. Exactly, because anything we replace Christ with in our life becomes a sin. Absolutely. So if my spouse is who I depend on for comfort, all those things that I should be finding in Christ, then then she would be, in this regards, the sin, even though well, she your would be, sin, yeah, yeah, my sin, absolutely. not her for herself. But exactly, anything we do that, anything we replace Christ with would be an idol, right? So. Right, yeah. So there right. you go, one question down. <laughs> one question down, probably too long, but that's okay. Um, second question we got um, <laughs> is a bit of a funny one. Have you ever spoken tongues? <laughs> I, long or short answer, yes. Uh, I... Yes, I, I have spoken in tongues. Um, 
it's it's a good question because um, my view of tongues has obviously changed. I I started my ministry career as a youth pastor in the Pentecostal church. Uh, Pentecostal doctrines of faith would say that um, speaking in tongues is evidence, initial evidence of baptism in the Holy Spirit. In other words, you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you speak in tongues, which I don't think the Bible teaches at all. I think Ephesians 1 is very clear that you receive the Spirit and all the fullness of the Spirit at the moment of conversion, and that doesn't negate our, our necessity to be continually filled with the Spirit, but um, to say that you get something subsequent to salvation, that there are tiers of Christians, right? Those who are converted and then those who are converted and have the Spirit, um, I think is just unbiblical. Uh, in the book of Acts, we see that there sometimes these things happen separately, um, but I think the book of Acts is a, uh, is a, is a very unique time in human history when God is pouring out his spirit, and there are people who have never heard of the spirit, and um, there are Gentiles who are receiving the spirit, so there was a lot going on there. But anyway, uh, have I spoken in tongues? Yeah, I've spoken in tongues. When I, I, I grew up in the Pentecostal church, I had my you know teenage experience where I prayed for baptism in the Holy Spirit, and no joke, uh, I remember the person who prayed for me kind of saying, okay, now just say whatever comes to your mind that oh, isn't no. English. <laughs> Right, and so I'm just sitting there, and and I'm just making up words, and so for for years as a teenager in the Pentecostal assemblies, I was making up words, um, and passing that off as as uh, tongues. Now, as I matured in my faith, I would say after I actually became a Christian, uh, which happened later in life, despite growing up in the church, uh, I I have had moments where uh, I, it usually happens in in really intense moments of prayer something difficult in my life, and uh, there have been times when I've been praying for a long time, you just kind of run out of words to say, and so I have had those moments where I've spoken in tongues, and it, it doesn't seem forced, it didn't seem fake, if you will. So it, it's interesting, if you look at uh, the uh, First Corinthians when Paul's talking about tongues, right, Paul says that he doesn't speak in tongues in church, but then he also says, um, but I, I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And he's talking to the, like, the tongue-crazy Corinthians <laughs> who he's telling, oh, no, don't, only one person at a time, please. So I think there's, there's a biblical warrant to look at tongues as some sort of personal prayer language. Now, to say, I, I'm not comfortable saying I have the gift of tongues. I wouldn't even necessarily be comfortable saying that I can speak in tongues. I, like I said, I've experienced it. Um, it's not something that I can turn on and off. And, uh, and so whether or not those experiences were legitimate or not, it's hard to know because there were so many years of kind of faking it. But, um, that's my, uh, that's my long answer to the, to the question. Yes. And I think I've had moments of it being legitimate, but it's certainly not something that I do on a regular basis. And it's certainly not something that I can just kind of turn on. So that's my experience with tongues. Um, what about you, Chris? I have never spoken tongues, and it's not because I haven't wanted to. I am actually, I believe they exist. I wouldn't mind if it ever happened to me. It just hasn't happened. Um, and I think, of, I think of the fact that sometimes we get caught up chasing the gift and not the giver. Yeah. And I think that's, that, that's very important for us to always remember that the gifts are gifts from the giver of the gifts, right? So we should always be seeking Christ, and then if those gifts manifest in our lives— that's a bonus. You know what right. I mean? It's just like a, not like, like you said, not a, an elevation of your Christian status, just an outpouring of the fact that you are seeking the giver. And so I, I will not lie. I, I've prayed to speak in tongues, hoping that I could just 
experience what it would be like just to just to be able to know hmm. because like like you've you've demonstrated a lot of the people I speak to and I talk to about tongues give me that same story where where somebody wrongfully told them you need to basically fake it so that it will happen real and I've I've met people who have legitimately spoken in tongues and I want to I want to know what the difference is in in my head and I want to feel it but I don't think like you I don't think it's a necessary thing to be evidence of the Holy Spirit. I just think it is an evidence of the Holy Spirit. Right. So I have never, so don't feel bad if you're listening to this and think, uh, think you have to do that to be a Christian. That's not what we're saying at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and on the other side of the pendulum, uh, you know, being guys who talk about Reformed theology a lot, we should also recognize that there's probably a lot of our listeners who would consider themselves Reformed who would think that tongues is either no longer happening or that it's uh, that it's a gift that's kind of been phased out, or or they would look at uh, the occurrences in the Book of Acts and say, well, this isn't a personal prayer language; it was used for mission, right? The the apostles spoke in tongues, and other people with other languages and dialects heard it in their own native tongue. Um, and so uh, there there are plenty of people who would take that approach. And to that, I would just say, you know, what what do you do with with Paul? Who, said, who talks about this idea that he doesn't speak in tongues in church, but he speaks in tongues more than any of the, the tongue-happy Corinthians. And so um, that seems to suggest some sort of personal prayer language um, that's going on. And, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm an expert in it in any way, but it's something I've wrestled with over the years. So, yeah. I can imagine. Um, so that was a bit of a heavy question. So let's ask uh, one of the funner questions we received. Funner? Is that a word? No. No, it's not. Um, that's okay. Um, You're forgiven. I'm, I'm forgiven in Christ. Who would win in a fight? Superman or the Hulk? I'll give you a moment to percolate that in your mind. I know who I think. So I'm interested to know if you agree with me or disagree. Um, okay, so we're in the comic book universe. Uh, Hulk and the Superman, the Superman, the Hulk and Superman have fought. Right in the DC versus Marvel crossover, uh, the two of them went toe to toe, and in that fight, Superman did win. I remember at the time thinking that I thought Hulk would actually win that fight simply because um, you know, Hulk gets more and more angry, the or more and more strong the more angry he gets, and you know, losing a fight is something that would make him angry, and so. The idea that Superman could pound him into the ground and then Hulk just kind of gives up or or is knocked out seems like that's not exactly how the Hulk works. Um, but the more I think about it and the more mature I've got, <laughs> I think the writers uh, over at DC vs. Marvel, I actually don't even know who wrote that crossover. I think they got it right. I think Superman would beat uh, the Hulk. I think he's just got too many tools. Uh, Hulk's got the strength. He's got the endurance. He can jump. He can do the whole thing. He's super strong. But I mean, Superman's uh, spun around the world so fast that he's turned back time. I mean, he can't. How do you fight that? All right, he's so he's fast. He can fly. He's, I think he's got too many tools. So Hulk wouldn't catch him if Superman wanted to be evasive. And I think there. I think strength is is pretty even. So I think Superman's got him beat. That's kind of where I come into. If if it's a straight fist fight where Superman can't use any of his other powers except for his strength, I think Hulk could beat him. Because toe-to-toe, Hulk would just continually get angry and stronger, and eventually critical mass would happen. Hulk would be able to beat Superman. But Superman has so much more in his arsenal. The fact that he can just fly away, Hulk can't get him, and then he can strike at lightning speed. Right. He can blast him with his eye lasers. Like, the guy's unreal. Yeah. So Superman would clearly win. 
I'm actually a little disappointed in our in our listeners that they would even submit this. Not that we don't want to hear your questions, but Superman versus the Hulk? Come on, guys. Give us a harder one. Like Somebody should be asking <laughs> who would win, Batman or Wolverine. That's a question. That is a good question. We'll save that until it's actually asked, though. No problem. All right, what else do we have? <laughs> Another one we got, um, which I think is pretty funny. Um, are we too Calvinistic in our theology? Meaning you and me or the Bible? I, th- I think they're meaning specifically <laughs> us. Um, so I guess it would be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Tongue so I don't know. How would you respond to somebody who who's accu- accuses you of being too Calvinist? Uh, I would actually thank them. That, that's like saying, Chris, you're being too biblical. Are you know? Are you are you are you too truth centered? Are you too Christ centered? Um, I, yeah, no, I get it. Um, I I get. Uh, oftentimes, I'll hear things like this, right? You know, you're 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 doing the I follow Apollos, I follow Paul kind of thing with Calvin. Um, Calvinism is just the term that we use to talk about something. So it's not that we're taking and digesting all of Calvin's theology, though I think he has a lot to offer. When we say Calvinism, we're just talking about. God's sovereignty and salvation, and I think uh, the Bible's really, really clear on this. Um, you don't have to go further than uh, Ephesians chapter 2, where it says uh, we we're all dead in our trespasses. Well, how does somebody become undead, um, other than getting, you know, obviously bit by uh, a zombie? Um, but how does somebody get un- times. <laughs> it's how does somebody get undead? Um, that that's something that has to happen to you, right? So it says, uh, "You who are dead in your trespasses have been made alive together with Christ." This is not a, uh, works. This is of God, so that no one can boast. Or you look at the New Testament analogies for what salvation is. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, saying he has to be born again, and Nicodemus understands how ridiculous that is. He, you know, asking, "How am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb?" Well, the point is, you had nothing to do with your first birth, therefore, you have nothing to do with your second birth. God saves men. Romans nine is is obviously uh, one of the chapters in the Bible. If if you don't believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, if you don't consider yourself a Calvinist, if you would be of the Arminian school of thought then you got to figure out what to do with Romans 9, which seems so perfectly clear when it says um, that he, he um, shows mercy on whom he will show mercy, and he hardens the heart of those whom he will harden, so, uh, and who can resist the will of God. So uh, are we too Calvinistic? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe we're too uh, focused on Calvin in our theology, so let's not call it that. Let's just call it bib- biblical soteriology, right? The study of our salvation. And, uh, and you know, I don't think we're too Calvinistic. I think we're uh, being biblical and we care about the Bible a whole lot. So that's my tongue-in-cheek way of answering a guy who's asking the question. Yeah, I would, I would almost put the question back to somebody else and ask, can you emphasize God's sovereignty enough? Can you emphasize your lack of bringing anything to the table in God's grace enough? Right. If anything, the answer is no, we're not Calvinistic enough because right. I'm not on my face down on the ground every day. Right. Thanking like, God for saving a wretch like me, right? Exactly, yeah. right? Like there's a reason Amazing Grace, the hymn has been sung for hundreds of years is that the writer obviously got the idea that we are completely useless without God's grace and God's sovereignty in choosing us. So to the person who asked the question, I would say no, in fact, I want to become more Calvinist, not for Calvin's sake. I think I don't even love the term because I don't like the connotations that people put with it, but I want to become more aware of my need for Christ and my more and more aware of God's sovereignty in my life and his grace in my life. So no, we can't be too <laughs> Calvinist. 
we should all strive to be more. <laughs> all right. And good that, exhortation. <laughs> good way to go. Let's go to the next question. Um, this is a real question. We got this just before we came on air, so we haven't had any time to to prep. We haven't really prepped any of these questions, but we haven't even really looked at this one. So I'll throw it out there, and then if we need a moment to, to respond. We got this from a listener, and she asks, I believe in God, and that I believe that, that the way to God is through Christ, but I don't really know how to let Christ into my heart. It feels like empty words, and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I'm lost. And I think the next line between that, she didn't write that in, but would be help. Um, so how would you respond to somebody who walked into your office, Nate, and asked you that question? Well, to be honest with you, as soon as you got that text, we were kind of uh, looking at each other like uh, with that look in your eye, you know, got a live one here, right? This is this is somebody, uh, this is like the story of somebody coming to Jesus and saying, you know, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? This is the question. Um, I'm actually preaching this coming Sunday, uh, Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you know, who do people say that I am? They say, some say Elijah and all that. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? This is, I mean, the biggest question there is in life is, you know, how do I give my life to Christ? So, um, so obviously this listener um, who put the question forward is asking, you know, so I, I believe in God. I believe that the way to God is Christ. Well, you know, that's it. That's that's the linchpin. And I think, you know, we haven't done a good job at mark. Maybe Christians have done too good a job, I should say, at marketing. You know, kind of a sinner's prayer or like a formula to you know what what do we do to become a Christian? And it's interesting because you ask that question at, in certain circles, and you hear, oh, you say this prayer after me, right? And you pray the sinner's prayer, and it's it's like that's a. a, a uh, an easy button, you know, the Staples easy button is kind of like that, and you say the prayer and one and done, and you're good. Um, but the the Bible doesn't tell that story, right? So the gospel accounts, you have 12 men who are personally discipled by Jesus for over three years, and nowhere do we get an account of their sinner's prayer, right? When did the disciples become a Christian? So again, we just answered the question about Calvinism. Uh, we recognize God's sovereignty in our own salvation, Salvation happens when God regenerates your heart. And Romans chapter 3 actually tells us that there's no one who seeks God. You know, this is for all, all of you who are listening who go to a quote-unquote seeker-sensitive church. <laughs> That's not a biblical category. There's no such thing as a seeker. <laughs> Romans 3 says no one seeks for God. And then as if to answer your next question, it says no, not one. Uh, and the idea is, is that to even come to God, to even recognize that the only way to God is through Christ— means that God is beginning to work in your heart. So how do you, uh, the, the question was, how does Christ come into your heart? Well, um, we recognize that when we talk about Christ coming into your heart, we're just talking about him becoming a part of your life, your life being um, sold out to him. So um, it, it's kind of this weird, mystical way. David Platt actually has a sermon out there that says, stop asking Jesus into your heart, because it just confuses people. What does it mean to, to be saved? It means that you repent and believe the gospel. It means that you repent of your sins. You recognize that without Jesus' work on the cross, without forgiveness for your sins, you're going to stand before God condemned. You're going to stand before God. God is going to look at your life, look at, at you, and, and deem you unworthy, right? Deem you guilty for all the sin that you've committed. So how does one become a Christian? Repent, believe the gospel. And, and I'm with John MacArthur on this when he talks about lordship salvation is um, to become saved 
to experience salvation is to make Jesus the Lord and the Savior of your life. Savior is the recognition that you need to be saved from your sins, and then Lord of your life means that you begin to obey, and that's what that's what it is, right? The Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations by baptizing them. That's the profession of faith. Jesus is my Savior, and then teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So repentance leads to obedience, and, and your, our obedience isn't going to be perfect. Um, so to this listener, um, and there's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. I'm not saying that that's not a good tool. Um, so I, I would say find somebody that you can pray with, but uh, begin to, to read your Bible and, and begin to obey Christ. And one of the things that Christ tells us to do is to be part of his body, be part of his church. So find a church and uh, get plugged in and start uh, believing and obeying what Christ tells you to do. I don't think I can add anything to that. I would just say the fact that you're asking that question means you're already on the right, the right path to salvation. Absolutely. Like the fact that you recognize Jesus is Lord and God and that he is the way, the truth, and the life means you're there. You know what I mean? So now at this point you have to make the choice, is he going to be Lord of my life? Am I, and am I sorry for my sins? And if you can answer those, both those yes and confess it with your mouth, then you're in the right shape. Yeah, and then I'll just say to that, you know, when we talk about obedience, uh, the New Testament just says that uh, the, the fruit of repentance is obedience, right? So how do we know that somebody is really sorry for their sin? How do we know that somebody has really put faith in Christ um, for forgiveness? It's, it's, it's by the ability to obey. So, um, it, you know, so start showing that you really believe what you say you believe by becoming obedient. And, uh, and that is, you know, fi- find a Bible-believing church and some people who can help you out. Start learning some of the fundamentals of the faith and, uh, and find a place where you can worship and thank God for what he's doing in your heart. Well, that's all the time we have for questions from our listeners. Like I said, we do thank you for them. Keep them coming. We're going to do this more often um, where we just answer your guys' questions as they come in, uh, maybe monthly or every six weeks or so. Um, but we're going to finish with one last thing. It's our Christian life act that we do every week. Um, so Nate, with a young family, how do you get time to do your devotions every day? Uh, it, it, it's a great question. We're very fortunate. We, uh, our, our little uh, one-and-a-half-year-old is actually a pretty good sleeper, so she sleeps till 6 or 6.30 every day. Um, so I just get up early, uh, and that's, that's always been my, my thing. Uh, from the moment I got married, uh, just trying to get up early so that you have some, some time to yourself to do that. And I'm a morning person, always kind of have been. My wife's the opposite. She's an evening person, and so she would find time to do it then. So for me, it's just finding a time that I can be on my own. And for me, that's getting up early. So if I can sacrifice a couple of hours of sleep so that I can get up and, and dig into God's Word, I will. Um, and then the other thing I would just say, um, you know, part of our calling as Christians is to be good husbands and be good fathers. And so, um, getting up early is that small sacrifice that I can make, um, so that I'm not taking time away from my other Christian duties, like being a good husband and being a good father and still doing what I'm called to do. And that is be in the word every day. So, um, one, one of the things I think when we're looking for time is, you know, the wrong way to go about doing this is to carve out time for, uh, your time with God and, and neglect some of your other responsibilities. So, um, as men specifically, uh, I think it's our call to, to lead sacrificially. And so if that means sacrifice a little bit of time before or a- after, uh, you, when you first get up or when you, before you go to bed, 
sacrifice that little bit of sleep because it's it's better to do that and, and be in God's word than to not do it and get a couple hours of sleep and not be in God's word. So there you go. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again. Thank you.